0: The main woods that we use for these instruments are spruce, and most of the spruce comes from the Jura Mountains near the Swiss border. There's this whole science that's been devised in the past, I don't know how many years, called dendrochronology, which is studying either the climate using wood like this, or identifying the age of wood, say, in an old instrument. It's kind of like a barcode, and you can really tell what the climate was like over a period of 10,
1: 20, 30 years in each stripe here. Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking where artists and artisans tell their stories through the materials they choose. You're listening to Marin Marais, Pièce de Viol, Livre 2, Suite No. 2, No. 38, Cloche au Carillon, performed by Salome Gasselin on a viola de Gamba, which was built by today's guest, American-born luthier Judith Kraft. Today, Mike Axon and I are in Paris to meet Judith in her workshop located in a vibrant corner of the 10th arrondissement where natural wine and cheese shops butt up against a more cosmopolitan offering of phone shops and exotic vegetables. A photo shoot is taking place in the street and also against the backdrop of a stained glass window. Judith's courtyard is hidden behind huge iron gates where tall white buildings house workshops and motorbikes and cars are squeezed against the walls. There are lines of plants in terracotta pots and a small white dog. A few young workers from other units lounge against the wall having a smoke. Up winding wooden stairs, Judith greets us in her office where a history of her instruments line one wall, some with painted gold detail, and others with fine marquetry work in wood. We ask her to introduce herself.
0: I'm Judith Kraft. I'm an instrument maker, luthier in French, or maybe luthier, I haven't quite figured that one out. And I make mostly early instruments, viola de gambas, but also medieval, fiddles, rebecks, and such. A viola de gamba is really a whole family, like the family of the violin, viola, cello. It dates from the, I would say, late 15th century. There are various theories about where it started, but the one I like best is that it started in Spain, sort of as the viola, which is their guitar. And... It's really a close cousin of the guitar because it has traditionally six strings except when the French added a seventh string. It has a flat back, frets, and it's tuned similarly to the guitar in fourths and thirds and one third in the middle. So. But it's played with a bow, so it's sort of a bowed guitar. My plan was to learn how to make violins, and when I looked for somebody to teach me how to make violins when I arrived in France, I found somebody who was willing to do it, except he'd never actually made violins. So I started making harpsichords and medieval instruments with the idea of eventually making a violin. This was in the early 1970s, so people were starting to get interested in vials, but there were hardly any instruments around. So somebody ordered a vial from us and then somebody else, and I sort of discovered it as I built them. I thought, okay, once this fad has run its course, I'll be making violins, but it Apparently, it was more than a fad. So here we are some 50 years later, and I'm still making vials. But I always liked doing things with my hands, just tinkering about making little things. Or if I had a few pieces of paper, I would do cutouts and collages. When I was in nursery school, I was in this progressive nursery school where they actually had us using tools. I have a photo of it here that I'll have to show you. It's a photo of me at age four, very highly concentrated on my work as you can see but anyway
1: and with a very large saw if i may say yes health and safety wouldn't be no no them out nowadays
0: no it's remarkable i mean we had hammers we had nails and everything and i remember distinctly just you know the joy of doing this we were making bird feeders
1: i think it's interesting isn't it that sometimes we do things when we're sort of not conscious or as in very young
0: well i was really conscious of it There was just something really important about it. It's something that really stuck in my mind, and I always remembered it. Well, I should, I guess, tell the story in the order. I went to the university in the United States where I was born for two years and got disenchanted pretty quickly, so I left. But I was already playing violin, really as an amateur, without any idea of wanting to put in the work to become a a professional. But before I left school, I went to see a violin maker to have I think, to have my bow rehaired, to have some kind of work done. And so I found myself in his workshop, surrounded by these old pieces of wood, parts of violins, tools, workbenches. And it just suddenly dawned on me at that moment, I want to work in a place like this. This is what I want to do. I want to work here. And that's really what sowed the seed, you know, the desire to do this. But I think the idea of working with wood was more carving it, not just sawing and gluing and screwing things together, but actually with violins or vials. You bend the wood, you gouge it, you sculpt it. It's a different kind of work. And that part of it also drew me. Between that and actually making an instrument that's going to have a sound and to be able to play it afterwards.
1: Should we talk about where we are now, your workshop? Yes.
0: This has been my workshop since, well, 1986. In a few years, it'll be 40 years. This is absolutely the dream place. It's in a courtyard off a fairly busy street, so very quiet with big windows that let in lots of light. In fact, sometimes it's too much light. In the summer, it's light all day until I leave. Sometimes you need to have a controlled light so you can work on the arching, and that's impossible in the summer. Is that because of the shadows? Yeah, there's no shadow. Sometimes I'll be working and the light is streaming in, so I turn this light on, And what happens is it just, it shades. It makes shade instead of light. But aside from that, it's absolutely wonderful having high ceiling, big place to work.
1: And you've got a number of work and then a lot of wood seasoning. Can you tell us a little about the wood and the source of wood? Sure. This is
0: really my entire stock of wood. Some people have huge amounts of wood and I have a fairly small amount. The main woods that we use for these instruments are spruce. And most of the spruce comes from the Jura Mountains near the Swiss border, and the other main wood is maple, which is used for the sides and the back of the instrument, and the neck. I think a lot of it comes from Bosnia, but it grows everywhere, pretty much.
1: What's the difference between the spruce and the maple?
0: Well, the spruce is a resinous wood and a resonant wood. I don't know if there's any connection, but uh, (laughs) it's the most resonant wood that we know. The sound travels faster in spruce than it does in anything else. But the downside is that it's a wood that splits just as fast as it vibrates. So if there's a little, if you hit one end of it, it's going to split from one end to the other in no time. So it's fairly fragile. So it's used only for the table, the front, whatever you want to call it, of the instrument. This is the front. And so you can see the dark and light alternating veins. And the dark is the wood that's been growing in a a colder season and the light part has been growing in a warmer season. And you can really tell what the climate was like over a period of 10, 20, 30 years in each stripe here. What you want is fairly thin, dark pieces and for them not to be too distant from one another, which is why the wood has to come from the mountains at least a thousand meters altitude, because otherwise the warm season growth is going to be too great and it'll make it too wide. So interesting that you have essentially a map of the climate over time. No, that's true. And in fact, there's this whole science that's been devised in the past, I don't know how many years, called dendrochronology, which is studying the climate using wood like this or identifying the age of wood, say, in an old instrument. It's kind of like a barcode. So if you give a sample of how the veins are spaced, just of what they look like, there are people who have these databases and can tell you that it comes from a tree in such and such an area that was cut in a certain year or approximately. You don't know exactly, but you can know if there's an 18th century instrument and they discover that the wood on the front was actually growing still in the 19th century, then there's something is amiss. So, uh,
1: <laughs> What does it mean for you that you came to France and that you're working in France?
0: I was traveling around Europe, and at one point a friend said, why don't you come to Paris? She was a childhood friend who was living here. She had come because of May 68 and everything going on. She said, if you come to Paris, we could share an apartment. So I took her old au pair job, which happened to be with two musicians, and they're the people who recommended this instrument maker to me. What is your day like? My day, let's say, once I get to the workshop, I get here at about sometime between 9 and 9.30 in the morning. And sometimes I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. And other times I don't quite remember what I left off the day before. So I go look at my workbench and see what's there. And that kind of reminds me. And I just sort of pick up where I left off. Sometimes I'll have people who come in to have an instrument adjusted, particularly having the soundpost adjusted, or if there's some problem, I'll deal with that. Having made so many instruments over the course of these years, there are a lot of them and enough of them around here. Sometimes there are people who will make an appointment and they usually come by appointment. They don't just show up on my doorstep. So it's a combination of fixing some instruments and mostly building new ones. That's my main work. I notice you're smiling
1: when you talk about this. So what are your moments of joy?
0: Well, I'm really happy when I arrive here in the morning. I love the space. I love what I do here. And I realized just recently that I pretty much recreated what I remember of the workshop that I saw. It's it's actually nicer than the one that I I saw, I think.
1: Would it be possible to sort of give us an overview of the process of of Mm sure-making?
0: Well, once I've acquired the wood and that's not a process that takes place here. I go to the Jura and very happily walk through piles and piles of wood and choose it. It's my favorite shopping spree. Once the wood is here, when I start building one, I usually start with the front, which is the key piece, and I don't know why I start with that, but I guess it's something I can make and then set aside until the rest of the instrument is ready. Historically, there are different ways of making the front of a vial, and it's of course, it's arched, so there, two basic ways of making the arching, which I can show you. This is the way it's made, say, on a violin or cello, which is you take two wedges of spruce, glue them together, and then you just start carving, and you carve the arching out completely with gouges, which I'll show you. There's another technique that was mostly used by the English, who made lots and lots of vials, that consists in bending on a hot iron you bend a central arch and then two sort of midway pieces and then little wings on either side so you end up with either five or seven pieces depending how you want to count but anyway five lengths of wood that are glued together and that makes the arching what sort of adhesive do you use it's animal glue you put it in a little jar with water and then you double boil it's great glue because it lasts for centuries Yes, But you can also unglue it if you need to. So after the
1: front, yeah. what do you work on next?
0: Well, you have to glue a bass bar that adds a little bit of structure to it on the inside, on the bass side, why well, it's called a bass bar. And on the treble side, you'll have a sound post, but that gets wedged in at the very end. The sound post is a little pillar, and it's just wedged between the back of the instrument and the top so it shortens the vibrations which is what you need for the treble side and also transmits the sound from the front to the back so it's a multi-purpose type thing do you fashion an instrument based on the customer sometimes and to some extent most people who come to see me want one of my instruments so they're the ones who are making that decision and the instruments don't vary that much but i can adapt somewhat to what somebody's going to be doing with the instrument
1: So after that, where does the instrument progress to? Well, you have to make the the sound holes, which are
0: like little Cs in this case, and a violin would be like an F. This is really a traditional shape, but it can vary. It can be bigger or smaller or narrower, and that does change the sound. Well, for someone who, who sings, if you have your mouth open, ah, or ooh, it works that way. If you have very small sea holes. It'll give somewhat deeper, more covered sound. And if they're wider open, it'll be a little bit brighter. So now that we're done with the front, I set that aside and I start working on the back and the ribs. And the back is just a flat piece of wood that's planed, jointed, and then you have to make a bend here.
1: Gosh, that's beautiful. And
0: then you have to plane the ribs and then bend them on a bending iron, which this is a, sort of a modern electric bending iron. Anyway... This is the kind so that they just, used to have and they would just stick it in the fire and then take it out and put it in something and then bend. And I used to use these with a little heating thing underneath. The electric one is much more convenient and uh, much easier to control temperature-wise. Uh, another difference with the violin family is that in the violin family you have linings which are little strips of wood glued to the inside of the ribs to enlarge the gluing surface. and that reinforces and also in the corners there are little corner blocks. With vials for the most part you use either strips of linen or parchment to reinforce the inside. Everything is more lightly built. So then we get to the neck. Once you have the body like that then the neck in this case is a separate piece completely and if you're going to make a head or whatever kind of carving you do that.
1: This particular neck which has got a beautiful ornate carve Head and mm-hmm. uh, some intricate
0: lace work. Is yeah. that
1: traditional? Is that it is
0: traditional.
1: And all of this work here you did by hand? Yes. Wow.
0: Yeah, I have these little gouges that I use.
1: Beautiful on oh. wooden handle.
0: The very next thing, which is what I was starting to do here, is mm-hmm. this is going to be the fingerboard. And then on the tail piece, there'll be another piece here that holds the strings, and then it goes over the bridge. That's how the setup will go. And I have to adjust the pegs. But in between, there is varnishing. For the strings, I use sheep gut, and there are all kinds of good sheep gut string makers now. When I first started making instruments, there were three main places where gut strings were used. One was musical instruments, another was surgery, and the other was tennis. Well, in tennis, they don't use it so much now. In surgery, they don't either. But with musical instruments, we use it more than we did before. In the early 70s, we were happy if we could find beef gut, but now the sheep gut, which is the kind of gut that was used on these instruments at the time, and has really a much sweeter sound than uh, the beef gut, not quite as hard.
1: I guess there are different grades of strings in thickness?
0: Oh, yes. The top string is always the thinnest one. And then if you want a, a lower note with the same tension and the same length, you have to have... A heavier string. So they get thicker and thicker as you get down toward the bottom. And in modern times, modern times that is dating from sort of the late 18th century, they started winding metal around some of the strings. So that made them heavier, and they didn't have to be such thick strings. But now, realizing what we lost with that also, people have started, mostly in England actually, making thick gut strings that are flexible enough to be able to be played even really thick and on low strings. And the varnish, what happens before you string it? There are different kinds of varnish. A lot of people use oil-based varnish, and I use spirit varnish. It's sort of a French tradition, but I know it's what I learned, and for me, it's the the easiest kind to make. You can actually varnish in a fairly dusty place like this without having to worry about the dust sticking forever because it dries really fast.
1: So that's a handful of sort of Lovely amber flakes.
0: Yes. So you take the lovely amber flakes, put them in a large jam jar, fill it up with alcohol, I think. 95%. Which I don't think you can get in England, but you can get here.
1: We know that, actually. (laughs) But you can get (laughs) it in (laughs) France, yes, because those of us that like making liquor... With that, Uh, I don't
0: think this is the kind you would want to be drinking. But it's really good for dissolving those little amber flakes. Usually you've prepared the wood in some way. Like, for example, on this one, I'm going to put a coat of gelatin, which is, it could be light glue, but it just happens to be gelatin. And that will seal things a little bit. And then I put chicory, sort of like a coffee substitute. It stains the wood all over. And then I use the varnish that I've prepared with alcohol. And I put on, I don't know, six or eight coats, very thin coats. And then at the end I do a French polish, which which is mostly alcohol with a little bit of varnish and it gives it a finer sheen than it would have otherwise. Unlike in the violin family, where they have all of these pre-cut bridges, my bridges are always a little bit different each time. So I have to start with a piece of maple, like this, Mm -hmm. and then cut it into a wedge and have everything flat, and then make it into a bridge.
1: Wow, that's pretty. It holds the
0: strings off the top and just barely off the fingerboard, and it transmits the sound from the vibrating string to the top of the instrument, which then distributes it to the rest of it. So so really, the, the principal thing with these instruments, you know, this is true with violins or anything, is getting a kind of balance between the structure and how it's going to vibrate, where it's going to vibrate.
1: How long does it take
0: you to make an instrument? A mm, couple of months, two or three months, depending on the, the size and the, the detail involved and...
1: How about the bows? Do you make the bows as well, or do no, you outsource those?
0: Well, it isn't so much that I outsource them, but the musicians will go see a bow maker. It's really a different job. It's different wood, different ways of using it. Some people do both, but I don't,
1: and I know some really good bow makers. So you have a relationship to the bow makers? Oh, yeah. And what about the relationship, both of you, with the musician, and how you get it to play the way they want to play? Because... You have yourself, and then the bow maker, and then the musician.
0: Well, that is really
1: an important part. I mean, once the instrument
0: is finished, so to speak, and you put it in the hands of the musician, musician will play and then say, there can be some very basic things, like the curve of the bridge may not be quite right, or the response might not be exactly what they want, or it may be fine in the beginning, and after six months, they may want some adjustment, and the instruments always need adjustment after about six months anyway. There's some musicians who think, oh, the instrument isn't sounding good, there's something I'm not doing right, and they keep on practicing and practicing. And then there are others who, as soon as they set the boat to the instrument and it's not sounding right, they think, there's a problem with this instrument. So usually the truth is somewhere in between. I get to see instruments quite regularly that need some sort of adjustment, particularly after a hot and dry summer or a damp season or before a really important concert or competition or something. How important is your own musicianship to all this? I used to be a competent amateur, and I guess I still am. When I finish an instrument, I can get a sound out of it. I can't tell everything about it that a really good musician can who will come and play and say, oh, this works really well up in these high notes or plays an extremely fast passage and says, oh, the response is good or it isn't. Those are things that I can't always tell on my own, but I have enough people around who can do that. Is there a growth in players of these instruments at the moment then? There has been a constant growth over the course of the, what, 50-odd years that I've been making them. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of them in France, partly because somehow there ended up being many places where you could learn. There's a whole system of conservatories and music schools all throughout the country. And I think there's something like 80 schools or associations, organizations where you can learn how to play the viol, and that's a lot. Do you sign your instruments at all? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. what and where?
0: Inside sort of, there's a back plate that runs across the width of the instrument and is to the left of that.
1: So can you describe what we're looking through? This is the the C-hole or the
0: sound hole on the bass side of the instrument and that's usually a label even on a violin or whatever will be on that side.
1: So it's got your name, Paris, and the year, which is this year.
0: It's for a musician whom I've made several instruments for named Robin Farot. And this is a treble vial, and I made him an English bass vial and also a French bass vial. Most vials had six strings, and in England they were certainly six-string instruments in the first part of the 17th century when it was a really important instrument and they made some incredibly beautiful instruments and music also to go along with it
1: they're beautiful
0: this is the wall of fame it's recent instruments but also old ones for example this was my first bass vial it dates from i don't know 1970 something
1: is it hard to let them go
0: their instruments i'm happy to see go because they're going to go to people who are going to appreciate them and make them sound even better i mean if i kept all of my instruments this room would be full to the ceiling it's
1: Well, tell us how it is when you go to a concert and you see your instrument being played.
0: Well, in a way, it's really nice. Sometimes I wish it weren't my instrument because I'm listening more to the instrument than to the music or thinking, why doesn't it sound better? You know, what's going on or what? uh..." But for the most part, it's really nice to actually know that the second life of the instrument, which outside of my workshop, which is actually to be used in public or in the hands of the musician is really happening. And also, it can inform me about how the instrument sounds with other instruments or in a particular hall or a particular music. And it's really why I make the instruments. Honestly, part of it is because I really like building them. And part of it is I, I like the fact that they become instruments that people use in the end.
1: So, thanks to Judith Kraft. You can discover more about her on her website judithcraft.net. Today's music was Maran Marais, Pièce de Vaux, Leave 2, Suite No. 2, No. 38, Cloche au Carillon, performed by Salome Gasala, and is from the Disc Réci, courtesy of Miramar. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of her work on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, or on our new Instagram account, at materiallyspeakingpodcast. If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, Please subscribe to our newsletter on our website and we'll let you know when the next episode goes live.